Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts gathered here be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Faith matters. This series, we have been building upon a premise that our faith does matter. It speaks to who each of us are. It speaks to the way we act out into the world. And our faith is shaped by scripture. It is shaped by our own personal experiences of God. It's shaped by great thinkers and theologians who have gone before us and who are still here with us now. Our faith is shaped by a lot of different things. We began our first week of this series talking about our common humanity, that we are all created in the likeness of God. During that first Sunday, Reverend Reagan introduced us to a theologian by the name of Irenaeus and the idea that when we describe Jesus as Lord of all, we should really mean all. Last week, we talked about the subject of sin and how we all have this collective and personal sin, how we all mess up and we can actually be united in that feeling and we can move forward together in our faith. Our theologian last week was a Quaker preacher by the name of Lucretia Mott, and she believed that sin happens anytime we withhold God's voice in each of our lives. This morning, we will address the common solution to that common problem of sin. In the book of Acts, we see the very first followers of Christ really working hard to define their own faith and to find space for their faith and their beliefs in their current context. They are still grappling with the death of Christ. They're grappling with the implications that Christ's resurrection has on the people, the people they're becoming and as they begin to pave the way for other believers of Christ, for those very first Christians. The book of Acts is a brilliant recollection because we catch a glimpse of the very beginning of the church. We see the beginning of theological discourse and the many ways the disciples worked to put their faith to words. We have been jumping around the beginning of Acts the past few weeks, and uh, we started actually with Acts chapter 10. Last week we were in Acts chapter 3, and the jumping around doesn't stop today, friends. We are actually going to go back even further. We're going to start in Acts 2 this morning, the second chapter of Acts. And this is actually where the story we celebrate and recognize on Pentecost Sunday comes from. But we are not going to get into Pentecost quite yet because that's still a few weeks away. However, we are going to pick up Peter's speech on Pentecost Sunday. We're going to focus on the second half of that speech. So actually, it's the end of where typically our Pentecost Day reading begins. We get another Peter's speech. 
It's a continuation of the speech Peter is giving to all of the Jewish people who have gathered together for this special day. Each person gathered in the space on Pentecost has been able to hear the disciples in their own native language. Peter continues speaking to the people and says this from Acts 2. We're going to start with just verses 22 through 24. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man whose credentials God proved to you through miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him among you. You yourselves know this. In accordance with God's established plan and foreknowledge, he was betrayed. You, with the help of wicked men, had Jesus killed by nailing him to a cross. God raised him up. God freed him from death's dreadful grip, since it was impossible for death to hang on to him. Peter explains to the people gathered who Jesus is and what became of Jesus after his crucifixion. We're going to sit just with this very first, this beginning of our reading this morning. The disciples are now realizing that not only did Jesus fulfill the prophecies in the Old Testament by coming to earth as God, but that Jesus also fulfilled these prophecies by being resurrected. That resurrection bit is a pretty big deal. The cross was known as a symbol of death, of destruction. It was a symbol that brought people down. The cross before Jesus was a symbol of the end. Crucifixion happened throughout Rome to punish criminals and to bring about what the Romans saw as justice, and it spread to all the areas that were under Roman rule. Often, the people who were crucified were slaves, pirates, disgraced soldiers, foreigners, and later on, Christians were added to that list. Rarely were other Romans crucified. And as I researched, I couldn't find an accurate way to determine if the people condemned to such a gruesome death were truly guilty, or if crowds and politics and power and nationality often marred those proceedings. For 500 years, the Romans practiced crucifixions. For 500 years, the sign of the cross was not one of hope. And now you can't enter a church or even most homes without seeing one. Our theologian this morning is a man by the name of James Cone. James Cone was a theologian, theologian who focused on black theology, and he is actually considered the father of black liberation theology. He lived from 1938 to 2018, and he was ordained in the AME Church, which is actually the African Methodist Episcopal Church. He taught theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City for 50 years. Liberation theology deals with the concept 
that God doesn't just speak through the powerful, but instead God speaks through the least of these. And that we can only truly begin to know God and understand God when we're willing to look at God through the lens of the poor and the oppressed. For our relevance today, James Cone spent a large portion of the end of his life learning about the lynchings of black people in America from 1880 to 1940, less than 100 years ago. About the cross, James Cone writes this, a symbol of death, that's a misspelling, a symbol of death and destruction, God turned the cross into a sign of liberation and new life. The cross is the most empowering symbol of God's loving solidarity with the least of these, the unwanted in society who suffer daily from great injustices. The cross was reclaimed. The cross became a symbol of redemption, of hope to a people who were seeking deliverance. The cross and resurrection are only the beginning of our story today, though. We're going to go back to Acts chapter 2. After Peter has explained who Jesus was and why Jesus was resurrected, or actually how Jesus was resurrected, Peter references a passage from Hebrew scripture, and then we're going to skip ahead to verses 32 through 40. Peter said, This Jesus... God raised up. We are all witnesses to that fact. He was exalted to God's right side and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He poured out this Spirit, and you are seeing and hearing the results of his having done so. David didn't ascend into heaven, yet he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel know beyond question that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the crowd heard this, they were deeply troubled. They said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, change your hearts and lives. Each of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God invites. With many other words, he testified to them and encouraged them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. Be saved from this perverse generation. The NRSV version of this says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Either way, the bottom line is the same. Peter is calling these people to change, to be what he calls saved. The people ask Peter, what can we do to atone? What can they do to draw near to God again, especially through Jesus Christ? Peter's solution is 
change your hearts and lives. Be saved. <laughs> it's easier said than done, right? Embracing Jesus' love in our lives isn't simple. Embracing Jesus' love in each of our lives is life-changing stuff. The idea of salvation isn't something that just happens because you say the right thing or because you recite certain words. Salvation happens when we are truly transformed. And it's something that happens right here and now and is offered to all people for all time. It's something that we can't hit the delete button on or get rid of easily. John Wesley had this understanding of grace. And if you are new here, my favorite phrase in all of the world is John Wesley, the unintended founder of the Methodist Church. He had a threefold understanding of grace that began with a concept of a thing called provenient grace. A grace, a love, a compassion, a forgiveness that is offered to all people for all time. We didn't do anything to earn it. We can't do anything to lose it. It's a grace offered out to us forever. It's a desire in each of us to draw near to our creator. John Wesley believed that this was a grace that was innate in every living thing and that it was undeniable to not feel God's presence in each of our lives. Then John Wesley believed the second fold of grace is the idea of justifying grace, the idea that we can turn over all of our problems, all of our sins, all of our mistakes, all of those moments where we pushed God away and that they would be forgotten. They'd be forgiven through the love of Christ. It's not being manipulated into confessing or being guilted into confessing. Instead, it comes out of a desire to be near to God, to be the best Christ followers we can be, which leads us to that third fold, the third understanding of grace John Wesley had, which he called sanctification. In sanctification, we are each living our lives as a new creation. We are actively working toward what he calls Christian perfection, toward the idea that we can be made perfect in love. Now, if I've lost you, if this is just way too many words, I'm gonna offer someone else's words because often, why try to say what someone else said very well? So we are going to look at this understanding of grace from the perspective of Bishop Kenneth L. Carter. He is actually a retired United Methodist Bishop and he explains grace this way. Grace involves both gift and response. Our identity as sons and daughters of God is God's gift to us. Living in the world as redeemed children of God is our gift to God. Justifying grace reconciles us to God, incorporates us into the body of Christ, and sets us on a journey toward wholeness. Sanctifying grace continuously forms in us the likeness of Christ and sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts our actions, and our relationships. Wesley affirmed that God's grace is universally present in all and irresistible in none. 
Although God's presence and power to create, forgive, reconcile, and transform are universally and persistently present, we can resist God's gracious presence and work in us and the world. The freedom to say no to the invitation to be reconciled and transformed remains. Contrary to the Calvinist of his time, Wesley affirmed that we can lose our responsiveness to grace and therefore backslide or shut ourselves off from God's grace. Still, God's grace remains steadfast, ever blessing, sustaining, and beckoning us toward wholeness and salvation. In other words, we grow in Christ's likeness as we open our lives to God's presence and power at work in each of us and in the world. That redemption, that salvation, it's our choice. It's not something that just happens upon us when we have water sprinkled on our heads or when we say certain words. Instead, salvation is the way we actively live our faith out in the world. It's a living, breathing, real, authentic aspect of who each of us are. This means that we can't save ourselves. We can only accept God's love, this new promise of life, of new beginnings being offered to each of us by our creator. I stopped short earlier when I shared the James Cone quote, so we're gonna read that last sentence now. Christians must face the cross as the terrible tragedy it was and discover in it through faith and repentance the liberating joy of eternal salvation. When we recognize the cross for what it is, Yes, a sign of hope and redemption, and also a symbol of death in what James Cone would call a symbol of tragedy. It's when we recognize every aspect that we can truly begin to understanding the redeeming love of our God. We can accept the grace that's already being held out to each of us in the open, loving hands of Christ. Peter reminds us, change your hearts and lives. May that be our mission today and every day, to continuously choose Christ, to choose love, to choose new beginnings and redemption stories time and time again. Amen.